Well, if we could, for a short while this evening, turn back to that portion of Scripture that we read. In the book of Psalms, Psalm 136. The book of Psalms, Psalm 136. And we'll just read the first three verses. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. For his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. For his steadfast love endures forever. <coughs> as we can see from the opening words of this psalm. Uh, we are being exhorted to give thanks to the Lord. For the psalmist says, as we can see three times, give thanks, give thanks, give thanks. And so from the very outset of this psalm, uh, we can see that this psalm is certainly a, a fitting psalm for our gathering this evening. Because this, of course, is a harvest thanksgiving service. And therefore it's right and proper for us to, to gather together and to do as the psalmist is urging us to do. To give thanks to the Lord. And so we are here again tonight for our annual service of thanksgiving. And we could say that it's our annual routine. But is that all this is? Is that all this is? Is, all, is, all, is that all that this is about? Our annual routine of harvest thanksgiving and I think it's a question which we ought to ask ourselves as, as we begin this evening am I here tonight out of an annual routine or am I here with a genuine heart of gratitude am I here out of an annual routine or am I here with a genuine heart of gratitude and it's a probing question because that's what we're being challenged with tonight in this psalm. To give thanks to the Lord. But you know, I always remember when I was in school. And for some of you probably looking at me, that probably wasn't a long time ago. But as youngsters, when we gathered in school, in the school canteen, we all had to stop and, and say the grace, as many of you did. And I, I don't know if they still do that in schools anymore, uh, with the way everything's going. But... When we stopped to say the grace, we would all say together the words, For what we are about to receive, may the Lord make us truly thankful. For Jesus' sake. Amen. And as school children, we said those words because we were told to say them. We didn't say them because we wanted to say them. We didn't say them because we had a desire to say them or that we even thought about saying them. Instead, we quoted them parrot fashion out of our routine like it was a religious chant. But it wasn't from the heart. For what we are about to receive, may the Lord make us truly thankful. May the Lord make us truly thankful. And looking at this psalm, the question which is now raised in my mind is, what does it mean to be truly thankful? What does it mean to be truly thankful? What does it mean to give thanks? What does it mean to say thank you? To say thank you because uh, we can say those two words so easily and so, so flippantly where sometimes the words thank you are, they're reduced to a thoughtless 
habit. And with our own children, it's, it's one of the first phrases or, or words that, that you teach your children to say please and to say thank you. And yet when we teach our children to, to be thankful, they say it grudgingly. Or they say it because, well, they're prompted to do so. What do you say? You say thank you. But I was reading an article the other day about Thanksgiving. And the pastor who, who wrote the article, he said, it's not about the thank you. It's not about the thank you because gratitude is our understanding of what we deserve. It's not about the thank you because gratitude is our understanding of what we deserve. And so when thinking about being thankful and showing gratitude like we are this evening, we need to ask the question, what do I deserve? What do I deserve? And our answer to that question will determine our level of gratitude. Because if we feel that we are entitled to things, or we are owed something, or we deserve something, then we're actually revealing a level of ingratitude and ungratefulness. But true gratitude is not about what we have, or what we've done, or what we've achieved for ourselves. Because true gratitude, it flows from the position of no expectation. No expectation at all. Where we expect nothing. Based upon who we are. And what we have done. That we are sinners. Who sin. In a sinful world. Therefore true gratitude. Arises from an understanding. That we aren't owed anything. We don't deserve anything. We aren't guaranteed anything. And that everything in life is a gracious act of God. Even life itself. True gratitude and being truly thankful comes when we understand that we deserve nothing from God. And yet despite the fact that we deserve nothing, God is gracious. God is gracious. And when we describe God as gracious, we mean that God gives to us what we don't deserve. God gives to us what we don't deserve. And looking at this psalm, that's what causes the psalmist to to sing praise to the Lord in thankfulness. Because he realizes that he doesn't deserve anything from the Lord. And yet everything he received from the Lord was the Lord's gracious gift to him. A gift that was freely given all because his steadfast love endures forever. And so as we look at this psalm, I'd like us to see that the psalmist praises the Lord with this heart of gratitude and thankfulness because of who the Lord is and what the Lord has done. Not because of who he is and what he has done, but because who the Lord is and what the Lord has done. And the first thing I'd like us to see is that the psalmist praises the Lord because of his covenant. He praises the Lord because of his covenant. But he says in verses 1 to 3, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. And when we read Psalm 136, as we did earlier on, I'm sure what immediately strikes us is... The repeated phrase, his steadfast love endures 
forever. And from our knowledge of the book of Psalms, there's no other psalm quite like this one in the whole of the Psalter. Because Psalm 136, it's, it's unique in its presentation. But when reading it, we may be tempted to, be tempted to think that it's a, bit, it's a bit repetitious. Or that it's a bit monotonous to be continually repeating the same phrase over and over and over again. His steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. It might, be, it might seem to us a bit monotonous. But in Jewish tradition, Psalm 136 was referred to as the great Hallel Psalm. Or the great Psalm of Praise. And it was known and loved by the people of Israel as this great Hallel Psalm. Because, because of this repeated phrase, his steadfast love endures forever. Because when the psalm was sung, it was this great arousing psalm of praise, which was sung, uh, I suppose you could say, it was very similar to the way that we would sing Gaelic psalms, where, where the leader or the presenter would, would sing the first line. And then the congregation would respond with the words, His steadfast love endures forever. And this would go back and forth, back and forth, as the, the presenter and the congregation uh, would sing this great Hallel Psalm together, where, where you, could, you can imagine it. The presenter says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And the congregation, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. And it would go back and forth, all the way through this psalm. And what would come through so beautifully as the congregation would sing it together as this repeated phrase. His steadfast love endures forever. And it's this one theme that binds the whole psalm together. And when we think of it, you can see why it was called the great Hallel psalm. And that it was such an arousing psalm of praise to, to sing to the Lord because its sole purpose is to remind the Lord's people that everything they are and everything we have is all because his steadfast love endures forever. And that's what all of the Lord's people knew. And that's what they rediscovered every time they, they took this psalm upon their lips. That they rediscovered his steadfast love endures forever. And what's clear about this when it's read when it was originally read by, by the Jews, is that the last word of every verse in this psalm, it's the word chesed, steadfast love. A word which we've encountered many times. And it's a word which is found throughout the Bible. And it's translated in various ways in different translations, whether it's the word love or steadfast love or mercy or Covenant love. That's the meaning of the word chesed. It's, and that's what's been expressed here. It's the expression of God's covenant love towards his people. And singing it, every line you've been reminded of the same thing. 
This one word, it assured and reassured the Lord's people of his love towards them. Because the word steadfast love, it's a word which, it expresses a marriage. And it's giving us this beautiful picture of a marriage. And there's, there's love. Love that binds it all together. And it's because of that love that there is a desire for commitment and faithfulness. And we know that for ourselves, that when two people enter into a marriage, there's, there's a covenant, a legally binding contract with promises and, and vows where uh, they're standing at the altar, you say, and both parties are presenting their vows and they're asserting to uphold them. But when it comes to God's covenant with, with mankind, God knows that we're sinners. He knows that we're sinful. He knows that we're not able to keep our side of, of the contract. He knows that we will not remain faithful to him. He knows that we'll let him down. We'll disappoint him. We'll be disobedient to him. And because we will never keep our side of the contract, we don't deserve for God to enter into a covenant with us. We aren't entitled to God's covenant favour and covenant blessing. We have no right or no claim on anything to do with God. And yet, and yet this is the wonder of wonders. God covenants himself to us. God covenants, he promises, he, he binds himself to his people and he enters into a covenant with them. Not because we're worthy of it, because we aren't. Not because we deserve it. Because we don't. Not because we are better than anyone else in this world. Because that's not true. But it's all according to God's gracious act. In showing his love towards us. And by entering into a covenant with us. The Lord makes his vow to us. His, his binding vow. I will be their God. They shall be my people. That's the promise. That's the promise. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And this is why the psalmist emphasizes over and over and over again. It's all because his steadfast love endures forever. The covenant love which the Lord has shown to his people. It's an unqualified love. Because the Lord is completely committed to his people. It's an unconditional love. Uh, there's nothing we can do to make the Lord love us any more than he already does. And there's nothing we can do to make him love us any less. It's an unchanging love. Because it doesn't depend upon how we feel. It doesn't depend upon how we view ourselves or what we go through in life. It doesn't depend on all our changing circumstances because he never changes. His love is unchanging. And it's a love which is unrestricted. Because there's nothing and there's no one that can ever replace the Lord's love for his people. 100% committed. And this is why the psalmist says, His steadfast love endures forever. Forever. And is it any wonder to us then, having 
This phrase repeated to us again and again. Is it any wonder that the psalmist calls us, those us, those who, who don't deserve any of this, those who don't deserve God's love, those who don't deserve God's favour and grace and mercy, is it any wonder that the psalmist calls us to come before the Lord with hearts of gratitude, true gratitude, and give thanks. Give thanks to the Lord, he says, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords for his steadfast love endures forever. It's a a wonderful, wonderful statement. But what I want us to notice in this opening declaration is that when the psalmist praises the Lord, he uses Three different titles to describe a king. But in these verses, these opening verses, God is described as the Lord in verse 1, the God of gods in verse 2, and the Lord of lords in verse 3. And each of these three titles, they emphasize the character and conduct of a king. They emphasize who the king is and what the king is like. And the first title, which is given Uh, to this king is the title Lord with capital letters it's a title with which we are very familiar because we see it all over the Bible especially in the book of Psalms and this title Lord when it's used it's always used to highlight that God is in a covenant with his people all because his steadfast love endures forever and when we see the name Lord we ought to know that It's speaking of the covenant God who is our king. And he is our king and he's a king because in the Old Testament uh, covenants they were always initiated by a king. Where the king would draw up the legal contract and set the terms and conditions of the covenant. So the king would, would make the covenant. But this title, Lord not only indicates that God is a covenant-making king, it also points out that the Lord is a covenant-keeping king. Because the title Lord, it means the one who keeps covenant. The one who keeps covenant. And such a title, it's very fitting with what the psalmist is saying here about the Lord's enduring covenant love. And so the title Lord, it says a lot about this king, that he is the covenant-making, he's the covenant-keeping king. But these three titles, Lord, God of Gods, and Lord of Lords, it's interesting that they actually, these three verses, they set the structure for the whole psalm. Because the psalmist appeal in verse 1, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. It's the appeal to praise the king for his covenant. Then in verse 2, the psalmist calls us, give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. It's the call to praise the king for his creation, which we'll consider next. And verse 3 is the psalmist's plea, give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. And this is the plea to praise the king for his salvation. And so these three titles, they, they set the structure for the psalm, where we're to praise 
the king for his covenant. But then secondly, we're to praise the king for his creation. That's what we'll look at just now. He's, we're to praise the king for his creation. But he says in verse 2, Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. And then in verse 4, To him who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him by, who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him is spread out the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and the stars to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. The second title used in verse 2 to describe who the king is and what the king of is like. The title, the God of Gods. This title, God of Gods, is one that should immediately emphasize to us that our king is a creator. He's the creator. <coughs> Whereas the title Lord in capital letters, it highlights the covenant relationship of the king with his people. But the title God or God of Gods, when we see it in the Psalms, it's always referring to God the Creator. And it should draw our attention to, to the fact that this King is not only a covenant King, but He's also a Creator King. And that we're to praise Him and to thank Him and to show our gratitude to, to Him, not only for His covenant, but also for His act of creation. And as we begin to look at the description of the God of Gods, we're immediately indicated in verse 4 by the psalmist that the acts of creation performed by this king, they were carried out by him and him alone. Because he says in verse 4, to him who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. <coughs> and the psalmist, he urges us to give thanks to our king because there is no one like him. There's no one like him in all of creation. He is the creator and everything else in the world is his creation. He is the God of all gods. He is above and beyond all the other gods. There is no other God likened to him. And is that not what we were reminded of when we sang Psalm 96? Where the psalmist says, all the other gods are but idols dumb, which blinded nations fear, but our God is the Lord by whom the heavens created were. And so he's, we're being reminded here that our King, he's the God of all gods. And he alone does wondrous works. There is no one else in all of creation who helped him bring this world into being. The angels didn't help him bring it into being. The other gods didn't help him bring it into being. The, we didn't help him. Mankind didn't help him bring this creation into being. No. He affirms to us here. He did it. And he did it alone. Because he alone does great wonders. And for that reason. We are to give thanks to our king. For his wondrous works of creation. Where he is Proclaiming his glory each and every day. And the skies are declaring his handiwork. Day after day. Night after night. But what we're told in verse 5. As he continues. 
is how our king performed these wondrous works. He says to him who by understanding made the heavens, for a steadfast love endures forever. And here the psalmist tells us that everything came into being by the king's understanding or, or wisdom. Everything that was created was created with wisdom and, and skill. And what's interesting with this statement is that the psalmist is describing his king as this master craftsman. In which the psalmist gives this beautiful imagery of a, a potter who skillfully works with his clay. Moulding it and shaping it and cutting it and bending it into what he has planned. And how this master craftsman, he says, he, he spread out the earth upon the waters. As if it was this lump of clay and he's just began to roll it out with the palms of his hands. He's rolled it out and stretched out the clay so that it would create this beautiful landscape where his fingers intricately formed the hills and they shaped the mountains and he cut the valleys and created them for himself and everything came into being upon the land and upon the sea. But the psalmist, he doesn't even stop there. Because he, he brings us right into the creation account and he reminds us of the sun and the moon and, and their roles. Because he says to him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and the stars to rule over the night, his steadfast love endures forever. And what we see is that from the very beginning of creation, our king has ordered and regulated everything everything he's ordered and regulated even time itself he's appointed the rising of the sun and the setting of the sun he's ordered and positioned the moon perfectly and he's counted the number of the stars and he's named them every one he's appointed for us even times and seasons he gave to us seed time and harvest time. He's ordered for us summer and winter. And what the psalmist is saying is that our creator king, our master craftsman, he's given us everything. Created everything that we can see and everything that we cannot see. And he spun everything on his, on his potter's wheel. And he brought it into being by the word of his power. He's brought everything into being. And he brought us into being. In which he created us from nothing. Yet he knew us. And he loved us. When we were in our most primitive beginning. When we were being knit together in our mother's womb. Being fearfully and, and wonderfully made. And through it all he gave us life. And he gave us meaning. And he gave us a purpose. He gave us vitality. He gave us dignity. Our king, he, he graciously gave all this to his creation. Because his steadfast love endures forever. And yet, we deserve none of it. We deserve none of it. Our creator king doesn't owe us anything. We aren't entitled to anything. And yet he graciously gives everything we need. 
Everything we need, he gives it to his creation. And even when things in our life take an unexpected turn and what comes into our experience is not what we ever hoped for or or planned for ourselves. And I believe that the hardest question to ever answer in the whole of creation is the question, why? Why this way? Why now? Why here? Why me? And we may never know the answer to that question, maybe not until we leave this world. But the wonder of this master craftsman is that he knows what he's doing with us. And this master craftsman knows what he's doing in us. And that everything in our lives is not out with his appointing and his control. And I just love those words of Isaiah in Isaiah 64. I've got them on a plaque in the study where Isaiah says, O Lord, thou art our father, we are the clay, thou art potter, we are the work of thy hands. And my friend, what better hands to be in than the hands of this potter? And you know, I always remember the illustration of one of the brethren at a cache not so long ago. It was in English, that's why I could understand it. Uh, But one of the brethren spoke about the work of the potter. And that when he went to visit this pottery somewhere on the mainland, he entered through the door and he went to the reception. And when he went to the reception, he was confronted with a sign which read, it said, the workshop downstairs, the showroom upstairs. The workshop downstairs, the showroom upstairs. And so he started at the bottom. He proceeded to go downstairs to the workshop. And in the workshop he he could follow the process of the potter. In which he saw a vase beginning its life as this meaningless, worthless lump of clay. But when it was picked up by the potter... And spun on his wheel and and shaped and moulded into this beautiful vessel which took time and, and skill and gentle care and handling of from the potter. But yet once it was finished there, it went into the kiln in a, a thousand degree heat. And after a while it came out of the kiln and the vase, it still wasn't finished then. Because it had to be sanded and and painted and then glazed once more in the heat of the kiln. And once it was complete, the vase was finished. So it went to the showroom, which was upstairs. And going, following the process of this lump of clay, he went upstairs to the showroom and he, he saw the finished article. This beautiful vase, perfectly shaped and coloured and glazed. A vase that was made into a useful container by the hands of the potter. It took a lot of work to make a vase look like that. But the end product was so far removed from the lump of clay which it was at the beginning. And my friend, needless to say, we can certainly apply the illustration to our own experience, where we must pass through the workshop downstairs, Downstairs in this world, you could see, we must pass through the hands of our potter, who will work in us, as the Apostle says, both to will and to do for his own good pleasure. 
But he'll work in us in order to produce in us something remarkable. A beautiful vessel for his own glory. A vessel which he will display in his showroom of heaven. Where there will be many trophies of grace. My friend, it's a wonderful thought. That our creator has created us. And he's still creating us. He created the lump of clay. And he's creating the finished product. And he's creating us to praise him. To love him. To glorify him. To enjoy him. To follow him. To worship him. But the reason he's doing it. The reason he's doing it. Is all because his steadfast love endures forever. And so we're seeing that these titles in the opening verses were being called to give thanks and praise to our King for his covenant. And we're to praise our King for his creation. But lastly, we're to praise our King for his salvation. We're to praise our King for his salvation. Because he says, the title gives to us in verse 3, Give thanks to the Lord of Lords. For a steadfast love endures forever. And he says in verse 10, To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, for a steadfast love endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them, for a steadfast love endures forever. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm, for a steadfast love endures forever. So the third title used to describe who our king is and what our king is like is the title Lord of Lords. And this title, it refers to our king as the sole ruler of his people in which he is to be our, our sovereign and we are to be his subject. He is, he is to be the king in his kingdom. And we are not to belong to another kingdom or to another king. And with this, the psalmist, he draws upon the familiar illustration of, of the children of Israel escaping from bondage and slavery in Egypt. And he says that we are to give thanks to the Lord of Lords who, who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. And of course this refers to the last plague in Egypt. When the Lord passed over all the houses of Israel because of the blood of the lamb sprinkled upon the, the lintel and upon the doorpost of the house. But the Lord slaughtered all the firstborn of the Egyptians. And by highlighting this major event, the psalmist is emphasizing that the Lord of the Israelites defeated the Lord of the Egyptians. In other words, the Lord of Lords struck down the firstborn in Egypt. The Lord of Lords rescued his people from the grip of Egypt. The Lord of Lords has acted alone in his great act of salvation. And that's what the psalmist is stressing to us, that the creation, the work of creation, was not the only standalone act of our king. It was also the work of salvation. Because there's no mention of Moses or Joshua or the armies of Israel. It's all the doing of the Lord. Where the Lord strikes the firstborn of Egypt. The Lord brings Israel out from among them with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. And, of course, bringing Israel out of Egypt 
It's the exodus. That's the word which is, which is used. The exodus. God's great salvific act of, of rescuing his people from bondage and oppression and slavery. And bringing them out where they were set free. And their bonds were loosed. And the Lord did it all with a strong hand, we're told, and an outstretched arm. Which is a euphemism for the king's victory. Where the king defeated his enemy and he led his people to safety. He led the captives free. But the marvel of this king's salvation is that he he not only brought his people out of slavery in Egypt. But he made them cross this, what seemed to be this insurmountable hurdle of the Red Sea. Which had been miraculously parted and divided for them before their eyes. But this king's salvation was such that he ensured that his people were led not only through the Red Sea. But all the way through the wilderness and on towards the promised land. And despite the fact that the land of promise was already inhabited by mighty kings with strong armies like Shihon and Og. It didn't deter the Lord of Lords from providing the promised inheritance for his people. It didn't stop the king defeating his enemies and ushering his people into the promised land. It, and it was all this glorious demonstration of the Lord's love towards his people. It was a glorious demonstration of, of grace from beginning to end. From Egypt to the promised land. But what comes across so clearly when we read the history of the people of Israel is that they didn't deserve it. They didn't deserve it. They didn't deserve to be saved. They didn't earn the right to be delivered because of their faithfulness and their good works. They didn't merit the promised land because they complained all the way. From the banks of the Red Sea to the Jordan River They disobeyed repeatedly, which left them wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And even when they entered into the promised land, the people of Israel, they failed to listen to the Lord then. But my friend, the marvel of this salvation is that the Lord of Lords saved them. The Lord of Lords redeemed them. The Lord of Lords rescued them. He he ushered them, he carried them, he led them, he brought them, he gave to them the inheritance. He did everything for them, all because he loved them. He loved them. His steadfast love endures forever. But I love what's said in verse 22 about uh, the salvation of the king. It says a heritage to Israel his servant. For his steadfast love endures forever. I love those words because in them the psalmist directs us to the true servant of Israel. He directs us to the true king of his, his people. Jesus Christ. And What comes together so beautifully as as the psalmist brings this great great Hallel psalm to its conclusion is that everything that the psalmist has spoken of is a description of who Jesus is and what Jesus is like. Because these three titles, Lord, 
God of gods and Lord of lords. They're all titles which are applied to Jesus in the New Testament. Because Jesus, he's the covenant king. He's the covenant king who loves with an everlasting love. Greater love, says John, has no man than this. That a man lay down his life for his friends. And his love is such that he is the one who keeps covenant with his people. Where he remains faithful to all his promises. And he is faithful towards his people. But we're also reminded in Philippians that it's at the name of Jesus that every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is Lord. But not only that, we're told that Jesus is the God of gods. He's the creator. He's the king of all the creation who spoke this world into being. He's the word who spoke everything into being. And as the apostle Paul reminds us, in Colossians, by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in the earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. But this is not only the sovereign ruler over his works of creation. He's also the sovereign ruler over his works of providence. He's the God of gods who rules over and overrules every event and every circumstance in our lives. But looking at this description of our King Jesus, he also assumes the title Lord of Lords. Because we're reminded in the closing words of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, where John He affirms the identity of Jesus and he says, For he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And my friend, this is the wonder of our salvation. That anyone should be described as those who are with Jesus. As those who are with Jesus. Those who are with the Lord of Lords. That they've been delivered from bondage and slavery to sin. They've been rescued from death. They've been drawn to himself. They've been led through the wilderness. Those who are with Jesus, he says, they've been brought home. To Emmanuel's land. Oh the wonder. The wonder of salvation. And the hope for the Christian. That anyone should be described as those who are with Jesus. And this description is given not because of who we are. Or what we have done. But all because his steadfast love endures forever. And with Jesus in our mind and his covenant and his creation and his salvation it's no wonder that the psalmist concludes this great Hallel psalm with a doxology uh, where he seeks to glorify Jesus his king 
by pointing to him. You can almost imagine him pointing to him and saying, It is he who remembered us in our low estate, for his steadfast love endures forever. It is he who rescued us from our foes, for his steadfast love endures forever. It is he who gives food to all flesh, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. My friend, it's only fitting. Only fitting that we come before this King with true hearts of gratitude to give thanks for his covenant, to give thanks for his creation, to give thanks for his salvation. All because his steadfast love endures forever. May the Lord bless these thoughts to us. Let us pray. O Lord, our gracious God, we give thanks to Thee for our great privilege of knowing that Thou art one who loves us with an everlasting love. And Lord, help us, we pray Thee, to confess with the Apostle of old and say thanks be to God for His unspeakable gift through our Lord Jesus Christ. O help us to see Him as the one who, who promises to us His covenant and who guides us in this life and who keeps us each and every day. O Lord, help us, we pray thee, to cling to him, to keep looking to him, despite everything that we may go through in this world. Help us to look to him with thankful hearts, that he is the one who watches over us, who neither slumbers nor sleeps, who promises to us, as the psalmist said, that the Lord shall keep thy soul, he shall preserve thee from all ill, Henceforth thy going out and in, God keep forever will. Do us good then, we pray thee, and cleanse us for Jesus' sake. Amen. We we shall conclude by singing in that psalm, in Psalm 136. Psalm 136. That's in the Scottish Psalter, page 428. It's the second version of the psalm. Psalm 136, the second version of the psalm. And we're singing verses 1 to 4, and then 23 to 26. And you'll know the tune, I think, when it starts. Praise God, for he is kind. His mercy lasts for aye. Give thanks with heart and mind to God of gods alway, for certainly his mercies dure, most firm and sure, eternally. These mercies to God's praise. <coughs>
Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, now and forevermore. Amen. <laughs>